This is the 2D10 Podcast. You better listen. This is 2D10. But you know that because the intro just said it. Well, this week, I'm having a chat with another podcast host. His name's Terry Robinson. He is one of the hosts of Mage the Podcast. If you like Mage, or even if you don't, you should listen to that podcast. But first, listen to this one, because that's how things work. If you'd like more information about where to find this podcast, listen to the whole thing. And at the end, Terry will tell you about it. But if you're lazy, feel free to click the links on this post on my website, utilitymuffinlabs.com. Anyways, let's get to the chat. Thanks for listening. As far as like World of Darkness is concerned, there's there's kind of like some marquee folks in the podcast community. I consider you one. What brought you to Mage or the World of Darkness? How did that evolve into you going, I want to talk about this all the time? I guess the two things were, I, I stumbled upon World of Darkness in the way I think almost literally everyone did when they were in a comic book shop and they saw the Marvel cover of first or second edition Vampire the Masquerade. And I was tired of throwing money at magic cards. So I decided to throw money at something completely different. I read through vampire and it was cute. Um, it just, <laughs> it, it, it just, it, I am not a horror person, which is odd because I absolutely love the world of darkness. Uh, Gothic horror is not a thing I really want to, to lean into. And that's right. something that's really built as I became an adult. Like, I don't want to talk about gritty urban fantasy. Like in my neighborhood, when I moved here, someone died from an opioid overdose every six hours. I don't need to make that shit gritty. <laughs> like where, where do I go from there? Why, right. why would I spend my free time on that? I found Mage uh, a bunch of years later. I saw the purple cover. I flipped it open. There was a short passage. I uh, It was at a Star Wars tournament. So I'd gotten over blowing all my money on magic and started blowing all my money on Star Wars cards. Uh, read through it and sat down and read the first 180 pages of the rule book in a single night, which uh, flash forward is a useful skill when you do, when you do book reviews. As far as podcasting goes, um, I am a person who I, I'm a raging extrovert. I want communities that I can be in that are drawn together by a common purpose. Uh, at one point, the defining one was being active in a religious community where uh, the faith was almost unimportant. It was the people in the shared activity. Yeah. I, I've been very active in Boy Scouting for years. Um, Scouts BSA is an organization that I spend a lot of time with, especially now that um, people who identify as girls are allowed in the program. And like, you can't say no to like a bunch of 15 year old girls who are like, we all want to make Eagle Scout, Mr. Robinson. Will you teach us about the carbon cycle? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, ah, fucking kids. Um, but the RPG community was fundamentally different because it was a whole bunch of groups of five people. Right. Um, then when podcasting came along, that kind of created the idea that there are bigger umbrellas. And I, I maybe I, I saw someone post on Facebook that there was a Mage 20th anniversary edition. That made me go down a rabbit hole. And... Um, I saw that Mage the Podcast existed. I brought, I, I listened to a bunch of the episodes and I said to myself, this is a new community I could possibly be a part of. Right. So I, I relentlessly spammed Joseph with messages <laughs> to be like, I want to be on your podcast. I want to be on your podcast. I want to be on your podcast. Adam and I had a two and a half hour long or three hour long conversation. We, uh, Joseph and I talked about our, our plan and um, I, I joined and I was willing to do the work. Uh, so they kept me around and that's <laughs> kind of how I got to the the helm on that. I got interested in uh, in improving audio production. I think things are at a place I'm largely comfortable with yeah. and that's how I got involved with that. And just as you build an audience, you become something people look towards that there's a mage, the podcast that sounds semi-official. You get a couple hundred listeners. People ask you questions. You start sounding authoritative on things and so on. 
And that has been fascinating yeah. because Satoros Filbricado, someone was talking about, hey, who are the most important people in the mage community right now? And Satoros rattled off a bunch of people. And at the end was like, oh, by the way, mage the podcast. And I'm like, oh my God, death <laughs> So that was a, that was a crazy thing. So that's, that's kind of how I got to where I am. Yeah. And now I'm trying to figure out where do we go from here? Like yeah. we don't have an M5 to look at. How do we make this a big inviting community when our core rulebook is 700 pages? Yeah. And that's something I haven't <laughs> completely figured out yet. Yeah. Th- th- that actually uh, is, is interesting that you mentioned that. Cause that's, I have a list of like certain things I wanted to ask you and that's down on the list a little bit, but uh, um, I definitely, I feel it's, it's really weird too. Like being in a community, you know, doing a podcast, like I started it just because I wanted to be a podcaster. And I, you know, I was like, uh, I, I started my, my old one, which is now my new one when the one that you're on, which is weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> cause I cheated, but, uh, I, you know, I, I never really knew like, what do I talk about? You know, I'll just talk about whatever I like and maybe people will listen. And then, you know, we, we kind of like brainstormed and brainstormed and we were like, well, maybe we just talk about vampire. Like that's the thing we do. Let, you know, we look at all these books we got, let's just do that. And then, you know, over time people, I, I think we used to like have people that would listen to our podcast and they thought we worked for the company and we're like, no, no, that's, that's a mistake <laughs> we made, uh, by not properly differentiating ourselves. Um, but no, we're not, but you know, I'm glad that people find, you know, as a podcaster, I'm glad that people are interested in what my thoughts are or mm-hmm. look to me to go, Hey, what do you think about this? But it's also kind of weird. It's like mildly unsettling when you're like, Hey, I just want you to have your own opinion on the, on the topic. You know, I want you to just enjoy it. I don't care what your opinion is. And that's something that is hard for me to maintain because in my opinion, uh, so we talk about the key old world of darkness podcast for the non-live plays. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's the whole family of people who run games, but for the informational podcast, that's just what I call us. I haven't come up yeah. with a better term yet, but you have walking away from Arcadia. You have midnight express. You had tenebris, whatever it was before that kind of, uh, went away. And to me, there's a spectrum of critic to celebrant yeah. and, and that needs to add up to hundred percent and werewolf, the podcast. Josh loves the game, but has very harsh criticisms of it, of where Josh thinks the game needs to be in 2020. And maybe he's 75% critic, 25% celebrant, and uh, Carrie, Josh's co-host, has a different ratio. The thing for Mage the Podcast has been keeping it at at least 50% celebrant Mm -hmm. in saying, this is a game we love and we want to bring in people, even if we have our criticisms of it, and Mage more so than I feel most games everyone's going to come to the table with a bunch of different assumptions. And it has been hard to maintain that openness of, of, of working into yourself, the idea that if you want to run it this way at your table, that's fine. My only advice is that you try and create a world that is internally consistent. If you want a world where mages can cast fireballs from their sancta and take no paradox, that's fine. Every other mage gets to do that too. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And and as long as the world makes sense, that's fine. But back to the point of like being known, I changed my outro, like for the longest time I ended a podcast by going bye, which I did accidentally the first time and I decided to keep it. And now I started saying kind of in the wake of 2020, go change the world, Mm -hmm. like a call to action. And a bunch of people were like, we miss bye. (laughs) How do I deal with this? So I I, I fully understand that. Oh, you're (laughs) people listen to you and they have thoughts about what you say. This is terrifying. Yeah. Well, uh, and and you, you have one of the most daunting, I, 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 so there's a perception 
Um, I'll just stop and, and, and recapture my thoughts here. There's a perception. And I don't know if it goes both ways because I've never been the mage guy, but you know, among the vampire community, the perception's always been like, oh, those mage folks, right? There's like three or four of them, and they all like know much more than you do, but they don't share it and they're very closely guarded. They're like Tremere players on like on meth, not not in their actions, but just like they're way higher, you know, attuned to something. Um and so it's it's I think it's always been very difficult to get vampire players to look at mage and get into it because it just seems like information that's beyond our scope of reasoning. Um, and obviously there's probably some view of the maturity of vampire players well-earned. Um, so like ha- the daunting task of running a mage podcast and getting people interested um, you know, what is, what is that like to find people and, you know, appeal to not just like, Hey, you're already a mage fan, right? Like, you know, shouting into, into the uh, echo chamber, you know, mm-hmm. what, how do you go about doing that? Or like, what ideas do you have to bring people to these games now that it's kind of like, it's beyond it's, it's lost its peak of popularity. We'll just say it kindly like that. I think luckily the world did a bunch of work for us. Like first to the vampire comp- comment, I hear people say that mage is daunting. It is, but it's daunting for different reasons. Mm-hmm. You have to swallow the magic system. And once you've done that, you get mage. Right. There's nothing else. Um, vampire is very meta plot deep. There is this massive parallel history that mirrors mortal activities like the, the war of thorns or the concordance of whatever <laughs> is the separate right. time skin. And, and Tyler, who was previously known as Robin is the chilled of bloody blah. And you have the, the big joke, the Malkavian uh, ritual or whatever to hide during the forming of the Camarilla or whatever. And it's this weird parallel history that has nothing to do with mortal history. Like periodically you'll be like, ah, the Zemisi had a, had a field day during world war two, which is a sentence I never want to have to utter out loud in a game mm-hmm. where mage is a layer that is on top of human history. It is how were the mages affected by the countercultural revolution? How were they affected by world war one? How were they affected by colonialism? And since the mage communities mirror the mortal communities, at least in second, third and fourth edition, mm-hmm. the, the meta plot as it were for mage, um, to me is quite small. The Meiji things that happen to Meiji people done by Meiji people is really short. The lore is huge because you're talking about literally all of human history and culture. And Mage cares about what happened in sub-Saharan Africa in 1270 in a way that most games don't, unless you have, unless you're running your, your historical Libon game, which someone has run. Right. Sure. <laughs> um, the system is also crunchy, but as, as in terms of what Mage offers um, two things, I think really modernity has helped us. One, one of the gates of entry for mage was, so you're a mage and you are a mage that gets to do magic because their culture is real and important. And the 20th century so far has been marked by people who are historically marginalized on a wider platform than they've ever gotten to before, raise their fist and say, we exist, our values are important and our beliefs um, are something that should exist and you should hear our stories. And mage is fundamentally built on characters who use that to empower them to change the world. So mage is a great game in a world where you feel like you want there to be change and you don't have the ability to do anything about it. It's, it's a special kind of wish fulfillment. And I think that's really met the 21st century super well. Uh, the other thing is it's fundamentally a game about hope. 
Like it, it doesn't fit into the world of darkness to me because of that. This is, this is something I've argued with a lot of people about. Like you have whether or not the fundamental game is positive and whether or not the setting is positive. Mm-hmm. Like to me, Wraith is a game with a positive meshen, method, uh, message. Sorry. You can deal with your demons. You can solve things and you can move on. The setting is horrifying. Right. Like Stygia as a notion is horrible. Vampire to me is the opposite. Uh, you're the, you're the super sexy eternal being that will never age. The world is your oyster, but at the end of the day, it's fundamentally hollow because somebody X generations ago spat in the eye of God and they are going to be punished for all time. Right. Maybe if you want to do the redemption story arc, maybe you can. Uh, Mage to me is a hopeful setting with hopeful characters in a way that I don't think any other World of Darkness game is, except for Mummy the Resurrection, I think. Because you're literally going around the world fixing shit. Right. (laughs) Um, So that, to me, is the draw of Mage. And in the 21st century, it's super easy to find an expert on uh, the history of the the mound builders or to find out about um, European folk revival Mm. things. Uh, the, The world being connected has served Mage in a way it hasn't served a lot of other games. So that's really interesting. Um, one of the questions I was going to ask you, and I, this is something I think we've kind of like asked each other back and forth and, you know, it's come up here and there, but, um, you know, I, I feel like in originally the designers of the world of darkness had intended for all of these games to sort of interact in one way or another. And, you know, they did it in the development of the different books and the crossovers. And that really kind of, I think, it inherently kind of failed, um, you know, and it th- ruined every line in the process. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so my question was going to be, you know, how would you, if you were going to, uh, how would you have these lines interact? And, you know, truthfully in the world of darkness, is that kind of like just a pointless endeavor? If you want them to interact, should you just play Chronicles? Yeah. I, I, are you a Spider-Man fan? Are you a comic book person? At all? I am. Yeah. So the thing that was always super cool to me about Spider-Man is Spider-Man gets to go everywhere. Right. Like in, in Marvel continuity, the magic people fight the magic people, the space people fight the space people, the mutants fight the mutants and the other superpowered people fight the other superpowered people, except for like four people. And Spider-Man is one of them. Spider-Man gets to go everywhere. Right. He gets to talk to the space people. He gets to, to deal with the magic users. Mage to me is a fundamentally liminal game. You are fundamentally tied to your mortal culture. You have the ability to go anywhere. You can use magic to disguise yourself as the undead. You may have a shamanic character that interfaces with the same spirits as the guru. Uh, You are fundamentally fascinating to changelings Mm -hmm. in a certain way. Wraiths respect you and are terrified by you, both by your ability to manipulate their world possibly and the fact that you understand and can see them. So in terms of crossover, I love Mage on the idea level. On the systems level, it's it's a shit show, for lack of a better term. <laughs> yeah. I, I really don't have a good way of doing that. I have never come up with a better system than we need to literally handle this on a one-by-one scenario. And it's why in my games, I, I to me, there's always like three ways of doing a crossover. One, you kind of... Uh, mention the crossover as a thing that's out there and you just come up with rules as you go. Um, Like there's a lot of cases where vampiric powers don't have to come into play if you're literally just talking with the prince or something like that because they they need you to help take out the garbage. Uh, The second way is you convert it to your system. 
where I say I'm going to treat your potence dominant your potence and fortitude as life three effects that generate no paradox, but basically use the same rule system. And I'm going to treat dominate and presence as the mind sphere and just reduce everything to rotes. Um, And then you have the third way, which is we're each going to use the home system that each one uses. I think the second way after years of running crossover ish things, I I never run mixed parties where we have a mage and a vampire at the same table. But if I'm going to have antagonists, I always try and translate them to the home system. Um, I haven't found a, a better way. Um, but I guess my only advice to a storyteller is don't take away what makes the other line special. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super important because they do all offer their own unique, um, you know, perspectives, their own unique, interesting, uh, pieces of the puzzle. I I think really like the big issue as far as crossovers are concerned are hardly ever going to be player to player uh, in a tabletop setting. I think most most storytellers that sit down and start to contemplate letting people play different things go, Oh, this is insane. Like I should never do this. I think where the biggest issue comes are like big LARPs and you know, for people like LARP presents its own host of like problems in and of itself. So, you know um, I would say, yeah, just, you know, when you use the other species or whatever you call them, the, the game lines as antagonists or whatever, you know, try not to cheapen them, you know, like mages, if you're running a vampire game, shouldn't just be like fireball slinging wizards. And likewise, vampires shouldn't just be like blade enemies that are falling to dust, you know, around every corner. Um, but uh, I, I guess so. I, another thing that I want to know, you know, you'd mentioned briefly about like a fifth edition. What do you think is going to happen with mage? If you asked me now to ask, if you said, Terry, here's a hundred dollars, I want you to place a bet on where Mage 5th edition is in 2023, it doesn't exist. It is still not out. Uh, The sense I get is Paradox wants to deal with properties that lend themselves easily to line extensions, whether that be games of some sort. And the whole point of Mage being freeform is it's super hard to do that. Now, if you were to say, hey, Terry, make a Mage the Ascension computer game, do I think I could come up with a bunch? Oh, yeah. It wouldn't be a first-person shooter, though, (laughs) uh, or a third-person storytelling game like that. Um, it, It could be something where you are sorcerers or acolytes, or it could be a storytelling game. It would be much closer to maybe the Walking Dead telltale games, Mm -hmm. or alternatively, it could be a strategic game or pardon me, a theater game where you are, you represent the head of a chantry that is deploying resources to win your area in the Ascension War. And it almost becomes like command and conquer, but with mages. Um, There are games that have done procedural systems, but as for the core book, I am not saying anything until Werewolf 5th edition comes out. Uh, One data point to me is not nearly enough. Um, There was a V5 came out. (laughs) One of the things about me is um, I I hate vampire tongue in cheek. I hate it because it's the popular girl in school. I I fully recognize it's a beautiful game that a lot of people love and have gotten a lot of value. I just, I'm just not a huge fan of it personally. Like the core themes don't sing to me. Yeah. but I have bought literally every book that came after uh, 20th anniversary edition because I, I want to know what's happening. And V5 to me is a beautiful book, except for the part where they switch back and forth between three columns and two columns, which I think is a <laughs> affront to a just and loving God. Um, and, and would I want Mage to get that treatment? Yes. How does that look in 2020? I 
I don't know. And I really want that data point from, from werewolf yeah. to tell me. Well, and it's and, really, it's really kind of, we're in a situation where, um, I don't know. I have to tread lightly here. I don't necessarily think that the owner of the world of darkness and the properties associated with it are necessarily looking to make labors of love. Um, mm-hmm. in the same way that maybe like an original white wolf would, I think that, um, how the properties have kind of changed hands have really put them in the, in the realm of how, how can, like, obviously it's a business. How can you make money off of it? But like almost solely, like, how can we repurpose this? How can we sell it? And you know, it's a business. I, I totally get it. But at the same time, I think that, it will be at the detriment of more, um, more, uh, obsessive fan bases. And, um, I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing. And I am entirely fine with that. Like it would be great if there were something to enliven the line, but in the meantime, like technocracy reloaded made more money than cult of the blood gods Mm -hmm. on Kickstarter. Uh, As I am fond of saying their mage players have fewer dots in herd, but we have more dots and resources. (laughs) If you look, if you look on our Facebook group, like, um, I say this tongue in cheek and I love our Facebook group, but like you look at the vampire and it's like a lot of people with fangs and like, um, the things you put on your eyes to make them look different, like cosmetic contact, contact lenses. lenses yeah. And if you look at the mage group, it's just Northern P- European programmers. <laughs> so <laughs> it is a fundamentally different group. And I love them yeah. because I am an actuary. I am the world's whitest man. Um, so, so I get that. But also like to your point, Far Cry 5 made $310 million in like its opening week or something like that. Um, if there were, if bloodlines does anything close to that, that will literally make more money than literally every white wolf book ever published combined. Right. So I totally get right. wanting to build up properties that create blockbuster games. And if we're just a side thing, that's okay. Yeah. In the same way that like, if, if mage fifth edition is a fundamentally different game where it turns into this, like uh, a teen Titan like game where it is teenagers, in high school, dealing with their powers and also going through puberty at the same time. I will have no problem with that because no one can take from me the fact that I already have 85 books behind me (laughs) that give me some variant of the game I like. (laughs) So I'm fine with that. The the only thing that I think could could happen is if they did it so poorly that it poisoned the well, that the word mage was no longer something people wanted to deal with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if it, if it just got dominated by Swedish edgelords, I I don't even think I know what that sentence necessarily means, but if, if someone were able to destroy the franchise such that I could not convince people to play the tabletop, that is the only scenario where I would lament it. I I don't, I don't think that that's, uh, likely to occur. Um, maybe I'm speaking too soon considering like the last couple of years, but, um, you know, with all the, with all the nonsense that like happened around, you know, white wolf and vampires fifth edition. And the fact that there's still someone trying to create stuff for that property. And there's all these video games that have been announced. And mm-hmm. da, 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 da. I think, I think we'll all be okay. Um, I think the, the draw to, to profit is probably bigger than the concern about the little offenses that have happened. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think in that regard, you know, eventually there will be something for mage and I doubt anyone will ruin it. Yeah, it, at minimum, if someone did a mage condensed, 
uh, if someone did a the V5 treatment where we took what was a big sprawling collection of books and kind of trimmed it down, yeah. I think that would be great. Uh, one of my projects, if I were ever like hit by a bus and had to recover and I only had like my two pointer fingers for, for two or three weeks would be to try and make that, to take my 700 page book and reduce it to something that was 250 pages or fewer in a six by nine format or 200 pages or fewer in an eight by 10 format. Mm -hmm. Like I, <laughs> I was asked to participate in a live play for OPP con for uh, one of the Aeon Trinity games. And I remember getting the book originally. I'm like, this is a this is a six by nine book. This is stupid. This is too small. I can't believe I paid $45 <laughs> for it. And then someone's like, Hey Terry, you need to play this game on Thursday. It is Tuesday. I'm like, shit. And I sat down and I powered through the book and it was clean and the art was great. And I'm like, Oh my God, thank God this book is so small and easy to get to. Yeah. Uh, so, so I certainly, I certainly appreciate that. And I hope that is something the community can figure out without it being, uh, yeah, these are 13 pages of home rules we use to make the system uh, make more sense. Like anytime your solution is like a Google doc with a whole bunch of comments on what Jim does at his table, I think you've lost the fight for new players. <laughs> uh, um, that's the interesting thing too. It's like, you know, tabletop role-playing games are not like they're becoming more kind of like mainstream, especially with like actual plays and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, I wouldn't necessarily consider them, mainstream like it's i think it's very hard to get people to use their imagination in that regard however yes i do believe that um you know while it can be very intimidating to to just sit down you know um and and crack a book and start role playing i do personally believe that actual plays have drawn a lot of people to the table that i don't think there've been too many other things like it um mm -hmm. in the past that have done as good a job of bringing new players. Yeah. It, it's to me, there's, I am hoping it is a two-step process where you have LA by night that makes people learn about the game. Mm -hmm. And then you have Gehenna gaming running 60 one shots at a convention. So literally 300 people get to try the game. Mm -hmm. I do wish the publishers did more to support that second half. Yeah. Like Gen Con was this past weekend and there were, 70 billion games or something like that. Yeah. I'm only exaggerating slightly. I mean, I, I was there in meat space last year. Uh, there were over 80,000 people um, and over what was it? 270,000 games were played. Um, like those people who are busting their hump to ST for a weekend, they're doing valuable work. They're yeah. the, they are creating the people that go back to their table and say, Hey, buy this book. I, I wish there were that other half of it. I wish companies were better at that. So not to, not to, uh, pee on what anyone else is doing, but I, I do think we need to elevate the people who are willing to, to do rapid fire, uh, storytelling for something like that. And, and I guess my big concern is, I am a member of an opera company because I'm what's technically known as a dork. Um, <laughs> and um, John Philip Sousa lamented recording technology because when John Philip Sousa was writing John Philip Sousa's John Philip Sousa music, every community had a band. And if they, if you wanted to hear music and participate in music, you had to learn how to pick up an instrument and play, or you had to be resigned to watching it in like a hot stuffy theater two times a year or something like that. So uh, every community had a band and then it got professionalized and we listened to the recordings of the best bands and people stopped picking up instruments. Mind you, they had other things to do. I am worried though, that actual plays make people go, I could never do that. Yeah. So I don't want to play. Like one of the things I loved about Monty Cook doing his live plays is Monty Cook is a big dork. 
Like he, if I am the whitest man, Monty Cook may be the second whitest man. <laughs> and the energy Monty Cook brings to the table, being super excited about the game, but not being able to do stupid voices and not having 400 page character backstories and everything is you can tell that everyone at the table is having a good time. And when I look at Monty Cook running a game, I go, I could do that. Yeah. Uh, likewise, when you ran, um, I don't remember the name of your the life. Play New Moon Rising. Did. When you did New Moon Rising, I'm like, this is better than what I can do, but that is not so far from what I can do that it is unattainable. Yeah. So if I wanted to run Vampire, I can use that as a template. I can't do that with a lot of other live plays. So I am worried that it will turn RPGing into something other people do yeah. because it, as it becomes professionalized and formalized. Yeah. But in the meantime, it seems to be raising the tide. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah, well, that that was actually, I'm, I'm glad that you, you noticed that because- um, Part of the reason why I've always had a difficulty getting into actual plays is because in a lot of ways, I find them a little like too overproduced, too like not actually representative of my experience as a gamer. You know, this is something I've been doing since I was 12 years old, and it was something I started doing because I was a dork and the cool kids didn't want to hang out with me. And the other dorks had cool books with cool pictures in it and they had toys and dice to play with. And I was like, well, I should check that out. And it turns out it was something that was a really great creative outlet that I didn't ever feel judged when I was with that group. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not to say anything bad about people who take the time to do good production and, you know, write scripts for these games, but that's not indicative of my experience. My experience is kind of like being at a table with a bunch of my friends and exploring this world together, you know, throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks and, um, you know, not having a necessarily a forward drive towards like some plot line I'm presenting for people, but just seeing where my players wanted to go. And, you know, for me, I was like, if I'm going to do an actual play, I want it to be just totally off the cuff, the game, you know, mm -hmm. what are, what, what, what are the players doing? How is that driving them? So, you know, in some ways people might listen to it and go, well, this isn't, produced well like that like where's the what's the story going like what's happening why do why do i hear all these dice but that's representative of what i experience at the table and that's all i wanted to produce and it also depends why you're watching actual plays right. to me i watch an actual play to figure out what the system is and i made the mistake of grabbing a whole bunch of episodes by red moon role-playing where their entire contrivance is we record a table session dramatize it and cut everything out that is a discussion of the system so like four hours into mummy the curse i'm like how have they not rolled any dice yet <laughs> right. um <laughs> Uh, but listening to, to new moon rising, like there were a couple cases where you're like, Hey, roll uh wits plus investigation. And then you would go, Oh no, on second thought, I think this is really going to be a wits plus subterfuge role. And that is useful to me picking up the system to be like, Oh, what is Nate's thought process? And I think those things are, are super useful. Uh, but that to me is something that is useful to the storyteller, which almost by necessity, there will be fewer of those where, where maybe LA by night gets players interested. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's one of those things where where companies don't quite recognize the importance of the storyteller right. in this. And it depends on what their audience is. And it's one of those things where like, to some extent, if 200,000 copies of your book gets sold and no one ever plays it, right. is that fundamentally different than 200,000 copies of your book being sold and that creating 200,000 playgroups totaling 1 million people? Um, if it results in the same sales, do companies really care about the difference? Again, assuming it sold the same number of copies. Right. And that that's something I wrestle with sometimes. Yeah, I, I think um, 
you, you touch on an interesting point about the attracting storytellers. And, and I think maybe there's been a little bit of trickery on my part unintentionally over the last couple of years. And that is more than attracting players to the game. I want to attract people to run these games. Now, both of us know running a game is a huge responsibility because you have to be the person who knows everything top to bottom or the person who can pretend to know everything from top to bottom. And I think that that's like an important skill that is totally waxed over. No one ever, you know, points a light on that. But I, I think it's super important to to show people like it's not it's not as intimidating as you might think. And I was a victim to that for years where I was like, I'm good enough to play. You know, I could play vampire all day long, but uh, man, I can't story tell this game. I can't, I can't run this game. It's just too complex for me. And, you know, maybe that was just me, you know, having no self-confidence, but like now that I've been doing it so long, my goal is to, as a, as a podcaster is to go, no, you totally can. And, you shouldn't let this game intimidate you because it's all just about having fun and getting whatever nonsensical stories in your head out to your players because they're not going to know the difference. They're just going to know that they did some cool stuff and it didn't seem like you were going out of your way to screw them. That and almost to me in like 2020 in a media environment where we have an infinite supply of well-polished genius things to look at on Netflix. To me, there's something almost intoxicating and subverting to a bunch of friends sitting down and making their own story over four hours yeah. that didn't exist when they sat down that is meaningful to them. Uh, that is almost an act of defiance to me in the face of all of the media options out there. And I think the face of gaming has changed such that I think it is now easier for a storyteller to storytell than previously. Um, you have things like Your Best Game Ever by um, by Monty Cook Games, which is just like, hey, this is really what you need to do as a storyteller. And then there are games where it shows you that it is not the role of the storyteller to have a perfect world already built in their head that the players are running through, but to facilitate the process of figuring out what the table wants to do and then provide grist for that mill. Um, I think my storytelling or the satisfaction of my storytelling improved when I broke down the illusion that I had a monolithic story in my head and a world pre-planned in every way in my head. Yeah. Like, Three years ago, if an NPC, if, if players um, got access to the secret files of the this syndicate uh, banker, I would have come up with a letter to hand them, to give them all the clues or whatever that I needed for the next part of that story. One, that is hugely time-consuming. Two, the <laughs> players may not actually get what they want out of it. And it's if you're one of those STs that has the cycles or does that, to me, that is a love letter to the game and your players, and thank you for doing it. That creates magical moments. But after playing like Powered by the Apocalypse games and playing a lot of other games... Okay, you're going to do a, let's go back to our wits plus investigation role. Mm -hmm. Okay, you got four successes against difficulty seven. You can ask me four questions that you think would be reasonably answerable. And just doing that saved me so much in time. Yeah. 
and, and switching to a modern thing of being like, Hey, this was your antagonist. Where do the players want this to go? Yeah. Do you want to continue with this being the baddie? Do you want to explore some other part of the world? It breaks the illusion to me, but at the same time we're adults and it makes it more apparent that we are all coming up with a story together as opposed to some grand story master with a great novel idea in their head that the players just get to explore. I think that change to me has also improved things. And I don't know of a good toolbox that has made that available um, within the old world of darkness. Like other games excel at that fundamentally, like yeah. I'll say Powered by the Apocalypse or Blades in the Dark, where the games are almost made for you and everyone still has fun. Um, and it's not the same as running through a D&D module because there's a lot more interpretability to it. I, I really wish Old World of Darkness picked up that toolbox and I'm not sure how to get it in there yet yeah it's a difficult prospect because you know inherently you know the game is kind of designed for that storyteller in in certain ways like people are they have a different expectation when they play a world of darkness game they have Mm -hmm. yeah you know an expectation of you know using your words to describe all of all these layers and um you know i i did the same thing when i first started being a storyteller um, running any game, really, I would get, I would get anxiety about mm-hmm. like, Oh man, last week my players got into this thing and I hadn't thought of that. And now I have to like spend all this time figuring out like every single detail. And you know, now I, I, I just don't do that. You know, now I just create little summaries of little plot lines. I'd like to, I'd like to present. And, you know, sometimes I look at it like pro wrestling writing. Sometimes your fans i.e. your players, they really latch on to a character. They really latch on to a, a, a storyline and they follow it to the end. And sometimes you present something and people are like, I don't care about that. I'm not even going to mm-hmm. pursue it. And, you know, instead of trying to like shove them into that storyline, I just go, all right, cool. Then I won't worry about that. If you ever get back to it, cool. We'll, we'll look into it then. But, you know, here, this is what I'm doing, you know, because this is what you're pursuing. And the question is, can we make it so that in Old World of Darkness, that the storyteller doesn't have to go through that three-year, five-year, ten-year process <laughs> of getting from one to the other? And that, that to me, is the question where I go, I, I don't know. And right now, New World of Darkness – pardon me, not New World of Darkness, but V5's answer to that is, here is a, a bunch of quests – which to me is not hugely different than a D&D module. But then you have something like Chicago Folios, where it's just like, here's a whole bunch of characters. Yeah. Every one of them has a neat little story. You can present three of these. If anyone latches onto it, that's going to be on you. But we got you the first third of the way there. And we have yeah. given you enough setting to do that. Yeah. I, I I hope that becomes the norm. Yeah. I, I don't know how well that stuff sells, though. I, I mean, it's on my bookshelf, so I bought it. And honestly... I I was very, very happy with that purchase because it did provide just the little bits of inspiration. Mm -hmm. These are things that make sense within the world that you're playing in. And I think for new storytellers and even new players, just understanding like, how does this world work exactly? Like what kind of things, how does A affect B affect C? And I, I think that, um, you know, something that I've been talking to a lot of my my friends about is like, how do we get adults who have lives and 40 hour work weeks and kids? How do we get them who are interested in these worlds to invest their time? And I think a book like that where you can just go, hey, take a look at just two pages of this 
and, you know, get a feel for how this world works or, you know, an, an actual like well-made quick start uh, kit. I, I love them. I swear by them. I mm-hmm. buy quick start, quick start uh, uh, boxes everywhere I go now because while I'll sit down and I'll read the whole book, my wife won't. Um, mm-hmm. you know, she's, she's got no time for that. So, you know, my friends won't necessarily, some of my friends will, and they'll learn every single detail, but they're not new. They're the choir mm-hmm. and I don't need to preach to them. So, yeah, I think books like that, I think that, I don't know if that's the answer, the universal, like, holy shit, but it's definitely worthwhile. And I think it's something we have to get a little bit creative about. Um, I bought the D&D 5th edition three book set, which is the player's guide, which is everything the players need to know, the DM's guide, everything the DM needs to go, and the monster manual. So you can go out and kill shit. World of Darkness never did that. Like the player's guide is just more rules. Like you have to read the core rule book and the player's guide. Right. At which point is it a player's guide? So it is one of those things where I wish there were a way to refactor things for lack of a better term or reshard it. Mm-hmm. And maybe the game doesn't lend itself well to that. I don't know. Like when I picked up a Powered by the Apocalypse game or a or Blades in the Dark, for an example, uh, the, the portion the players have to read is like 40 to 60 pages. And I, I never want to ask a player to read more than a hundred pages. That's, that's like asking them to get a tooth pulled. I'm, I'm the, the the masochist. I'm the storyteller. I'm comfortable sitting down and reading Black's Law Dictionary. Um, I, I am curious what it would look like if we did that for Mage. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, I think that we kind of, um, as fans, as like the hardcore nerd fans, uh, that are also podcasters. I think we kind of like occupy that weird space for a lot of these gaming companies where like, you know, I, I want to present material where players go, Oh, now I don't have to go read a hundred mm-hmm. pages to know, you know, who the hell is Kane and why does it pertain to me? You know, uh, what, what is the, you know, what, what tribe of werewolves is that? And where did they like, mm-hmm. You know, oh, by the way, uh, when you decide you're going to play this game, this Werewolf the Apocalypse game, uh, take a look at this bookshelf. You're going to need 50 of these books. Like, that's crazy. (laughs) Nobody wants that. And I think that's actually a weird place where Maid shines. Because, sure, we have traditions, but uh, the orphans and the crafts are not – they are looked down upon from the traditions. And since all of second edition was largely from the traditions point of view, but like vampire, you don't really have that choice. You have to be familiar with some of the clans. Mage has the terrifying option that you can just pick something else. If you want to be a, a Dresden like character, that's fine. If you want to be a Harry Potter like character, that is fine. And that is also hard because the game is now demanding you bring that idea to the table and mage doesn't have, good recommendations for that. Um, there is no book of paradigms that you can, that you can go through. It gives you the traditions. It gives you a few other options. And that is another place where just here is a book of two page spreads of things you could be. And it is nothing like that. Take it to the can with you, flip through, tell me two things that look cool to you. We'll mash them together. Boom. That'll be your character. And that is something mage can do that no other game gets to do. Cause there's no good way to be a, 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 Toriador La Sombra. They're they're two different things. You don't, you don't get to cross those. You can't add that peanut butter to that fudge. Um, Mage lets you combine everything. You have to bring your own though. And sometimes it's not peanut butter and fudge. It's uh, orange juice and vanilla ice cream or tuna fish, (laughs) Uh, tuna fish and brandy. Yeah. Two things I like separately, but I don't want to bring them together. So mage is like my secret desire to play. I've told you this before. So um, I'm going to harass you. I would like to play in a game 
with you. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't have to make any promises. I mean, this can be any time. It could be never. All I heard you say is, Terry, I want to record a one shot of the con game that you do, and you're going to bring some friends to the table, and we're going to play some effing mage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that yeah. sounds legit. That sounds legit. Done. So G give me uh, give me three and a half hours, and we can do this. Um, I will. Uh, I'll work on my surroundings here and see what I can come up with. Um, what's your favorite mage book? <gasps> uh, <laughs> oh dear. Hold on. Uh, the, the squeaky noise you're going to hear is my chair as I turn around to look at all my mage books. Um, so there, there's a couple ways to answer this question. Uh, one would be if my house were on fire and I had to grab one thing and run with it, uh, what would it be? And the answer would be the mage, of the Ascension tarot, because that was the most expensive thing that I have. <laughs> when my girlfriend saw that, she's like, how much was that? I'm like, I prefer to think that this was a dollar 25 per card. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and she's like, Oh, <laughs> did I, did I, uh, did I ever tell you, um, that was like when I was in my adolescent in my world of darkness gaming, that was one of the first things I ever purchased. Uh, because I was like, I don't know what mage is, but this looks cool. And I know what vampire is. So it's gotta be related. And, uh, yeah, I lost the deck and I have no clue what happened to it, where it went. Uh, and now it's one of my biggest regrets. Yeah. I, I let a, uh, an associate of mine borrow all of my D and D second edition books. I had an almost complete set of everything from Planescape. Um, which I'm now trying to reassemble after it turns out that person made a whole bunch of bad choices and I'd rather not interface with that person. <laughs> and, um, I just broke about a thousand dollars in terms and I'm about halfway done getting all of those things back. So I too know the pain of supplements and games loss, but as far as, uh, favorite books, um, can I cheat and give you more than one? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm going to ask you your least favorite as well. So, <laughs> uh, my, my favorite in terms of just one of the regular books is probably the tradition book, Euthanatos. I love the Euthanatos as a tradition or the Euthanatoi. They are the group in the game that believes that the cycle of creation of things being born, living and dying, and then being remade must be maintained. There are certain things out there that resist that natural flow of rebirth. And they are here to make sure that that river of, of, life is goes undammed. Um, and uh, they have a particular disdain for vampires. How about that? Um, but that book was beautiful in how it portrayed people who do what they consider to be necessary work. And it is a group that coalesces all the people in the cultures that did the necessary things that no one else wanted to do. They were the people that knew the funerary rites. They were the people that disposed of the dead. Those are the people that went out and starved for six days by a cliffside so they could get the vision of the future that would allow their tribe or community to make the appropriate decisions to get through winter and to make the choice of um, what do we reap and what do we sow. Uh, it was beautifully written. It is done in an epistolary form, um, following the actions of a, um, an apprentice who is asked to watch this trial of this young girl that was taken in by Vormos grand harvester of souls, which is kind of like mages, big bad, um, in terms of uh, what that character does in the setting and is seeing the scared little girl being accused of basically committing genocide and how every tradition viewed that. And the people within this group saying, hey, how do we deal with our own? 
Um, in addition to that, it had a really cool appendix with a whole bunch of weird ass weapons from around the world. So like it gave me the crunch I wanted mm-hmm. and it gave me the beautiful setting that Mage to me absolutely excels at. It is both very human and a little bit out there at the same time. And it was overall well-written. Is this the um, uh, first edition of the book? First edition. Or, okay. Yep. Yeah. With the, yep. like the foil covers. Yep. Yep. The, uh, the Michael Kaluta series where it just shows a person wielding a a Corona of bones or something around, uh, in in terms of other books, um, the fragile path, it is a book that is a collection of the stories of the first cabal. So in 1466, when the grand convocation is held and a call goes out that says, Hey, these technocrats, these, this order of reason is trying to uh, destroy magic. We need to fight back to preserve our way of life. And within Sorcerer's Crusade, which was kind of a spin-off line, the, there is that interesting question of, eh, should we let magic die off? Maybe that could be a good thing if we do this well and give everyone the tools to prosper. Um, it, this group is called together and the leader of the group, uh, Hillel, sees that unless an outside force makes the council come together, they will just keep bickering. So he completely betrays this group that has spent four years or whatever going around the world doing, mm-hmm. doing good stuff. And he sees that after four years, they're still bickering about everything. So he betrays the book, the group in this attempt to say, hey, we need to bring everyone together with a common outside enemy. And as he is being burned as a heretic, as he is going through Gilgul, as his, his avatar is literally being rent in half, he sees for this brief moment unity across the council. Um, and his hope is that his betrayal will bring everything together. It doesn't. It takes another <laughs> five centuries for the council to get their shit together, uh, basically since World War II. So this happens in uh, the 1470s or something like that. And not until 1950 did the council really start uh, firing on all cylinders. And the book is interesting because, one, it's a beautiful book. It is it is done in world. It is our um, Revelations of, of the Dark Mother, right. Book of Nod. Yeah. Um, each section is done on a different paper stock to make it really feel like a whole bunch of things were brought together. And also, in traditional White Wolf style, the first version was horribly misprinted. Uh, Mage has two things you should associate with it. Complicated sphere rules and the color purple. Um, and the first... <laughs> And this was printed with a red cover for reasons that just result in Rich Thomas just screaming at the publishing company. Like, there is one thing that we ask, that the outer cover be purple. And they produce <laughs> this red-ass book. Um, so I, I feel like that nicely encapsulates Mage. And it is beautiful, and there are no rules in it. And it just lays out the the aching hope that is in the book, that even across 500 years, the traditions are still trying to get it right. And maybe, just maybe, now they're starting to. Um, and of course, it's World of Darkness, so the apocalypse is upon us at any moment. So those would probably be, the, the, those are the two that I think back to. Uh, are they the two books I would recommend to a new player? No. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but are they the books that so far are important to me? Yeah. Right. Now, how about the least favorite? Uh, if are you, are if, you looking? For, I'm looking for the book that if someone broke into your house and was like, you need to go to this shelf and you need to find a book to burn right here in front of me, or I'm going to you know, insert terrible thing here, you get going. Which book do you go? I got it. Hold on. 
So this, again, I'm going to cheat in my answer in that I often buy books in lots. So there are certain books that I accidentally have like four copies of. <laughs> so I would probably throw one of those. In fact, I think you got one of my copies of uh, Heresy of the Way for Kindred of the East because there was a brief period of time where I forgot I had gotten a copy via eBay, Amazon, uh Abe books or ABE books, as well as half price books. Mm -hmm. So I briefly had four copies of it. Uh, so I, <laughs> I would use that to defend myself, but otherwise um, they're probably like tales of magic, dark adventures. It was a book that was supposed to be like how to run a really high adventure mage campaign. And like, there are certain things you just really can't do in old world of darkness. Like the game isn't really set up for it. Like it's really hard to have complicated political machinations in second edition D and D because it just didn't have systems for that. You had to role play your way through it and you were just at whatever the heck the, the, uh, the dungeon master said, uh, mage doesn't fit high adventure well. So to have a book about here are awesome plots that you can use <laughs> and then have no way of mechanically supporting that just made me be like, duh. Like it just, the, uh, the instructions didn't match the description. Uh, it was one, of, it was one of those things where you're like, this is an epic game of war fantasy. And then you crack it open and you see the, the wizards and the, in the fireballs in the cover and inside it's just little cut up bits of cereal boxes or something. And you're like this, <laughs> these two do not match. Right. Um, and, and that is not to say that the book is not useful. It's just one of those things where I'm fond of saying stories have not changed, but storytelling has. Uh, as an industry, role-playing games have figured out new ways to get players to play a certain type of game, and Mage just wasn't there yet. Yeah. Um, so that, that would probably be my, my, my go-to of, oh no, a horrible accident has happened <laughs> and I lost this, um, which would still be an accident to me because as a completist, I would immediately have to go out and buy another copy. I would be muttering angrily the whole time. I was, yeah. was going to ask you if you uh, um, had like lists or spreadsheets Certainly. Um, so I, I think I'm, with the exception of Vampire, yeah. I'm seven books away from all of Old World of Darkness. That's that's about. extensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm and, clearly not there. Um, and, and there are certain exceptions I've made. Like, for instance, I, I'm fine with print on demand. Yeah. So uh, Kith Book Knockers or Issue, I'm not going to pay $50 for. I will pay 17 to get the PDF plus print on demand. Um, I think Lightning Source just has a box with my name on it. And every month they just fill it and send it to me, uh, which has been pretty great. And I'm also fine if something is part of a compilation. Like for Werewolf, I just have the um, the Werewolf Chronicles or whatever that is. Or like the Rage Across the World. Yeah. I feel no urge to get all the supplements. Yeah. Mage is a different story. Um, that is one where I need every copy of everything because I'm the mage guy. And the current thing I'm trying to finish off are the, the lick and stick temporary tattoos <laughs> that came out in the late nineties. I have all of them, but dream speaker. So if you happen to have a sheet of dream speaker, lick and stick temporary tattoos, uh, uh come join us, uh, discord.me slash maids, the podcast yeah. or at maids, the podcast on Twitter. I will be glad to give you $12 for it or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was definitely in that, like collect them all mode, um, you mm -hmm. know, for obvious reasons. Um, you know, we were doing book by book reviews, you know, that podcast is still doing them. I'm not a participant in that anymore. And I'm pretty sure that, uh, my significant other is quite happy that that's the case because, um, now I don't feel obligated to own a physical copy of every book. Mm -hmm. Um, and so now, you know, I'm back in kind of like the mode of, 
I'm only going to get a book if, if I feel like it's necessary for my game. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas before I was very much like, I need to get every book. I need to get, I need to own a copy of all of them. Um, you know, I was, uh, I'm, I'm happy. I have a complete set of every dark ages book. That's, that's my, that's my claim to fame. Now I got every nice. one of them. I have, I have all of the kindred of the East books and I'll, I'll definitely read them. Uh, <laughs> Are you saying that aspirationally? Yes. Like, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. My goal is to read them. Um, I have not. Um, but uh, yeah, now, now I, I'm like you though. Uh, I want, I, if I want a book for my collection, I want it for its function and mm-hmm. I hate reading PDFs. So, you know, I, I have that problem. I got to have a physical book to read. Otherwise I fall asleep. And uh, so, yeah, I, I have, like five different checklists because what would happen is my memory is just garbage. And I would go to, you know, your half price books or, you know, whatever, uh, any kind of like reseller. And I'd be like, Oh, I need a copy of that. And I'd take it home and I'd be like, I already have two, you know, just my brain would be like, I love that book. I should get it. And then I already have it. Um, so yeah, I had to, I had to like make concessions and start keeping PDFs of, of, my list of books that I have. So I didn't buy multiple copies. The, the weird uh, compromise I made, I know a lot of people have like their personal copy and then they'll have like a beater copy for the table. I, I went the direction of learning book binding so I could repair them as they went <laughs> where, where I'm like, I have no problem buying the entirety of Orpheus, but buy a second copy of a book that I use constantly that is being mauled by my players. No, what kind of dollar foolish <laughs> person do you take me for? I'll learn the, the lost art of book binding. So, uh, when, when people are like, boo hoo, print on demand is crap. I'm like, I'll, I'll show you how to fix it, buddy. Um, not a lot of people have taken me up on that offer yet. So, but I, I, I fully understand that. And to me, there's, there's, there's something nice about having the book, especially if it's hardback. Uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for anything that's available in hardback. There is something real about holding that tome to me that is almost intoxicating. Um, and again, this is world of darkness books or something I picked up in, in my teens. And we have a special bond with our teenage years yeah. that we can never repeat anywhere else. Uh, so, so part of it for me was my version of nostalgia, um, of buying the books I never could as a kid or something like that. But, uh, can I still use that excuse when something is a 20th anniversary edition and it's print on demand and it was never available in 1997? Probably not. Do I still use that excuse? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't second guess it or my therapist will yell at me. <laughs> right. I, I actually, uh, usually if I, if I really enjoy a game, I'll buy two copies of the rule book, one mm-hmm. for me and then mm-hmm. one for the table. You know, I feel like mm-hmm. if I'm going to run a game, I have like somewhat of an obligation to at least present material for my players. And I definitely need one for me. So, you know, with vampire, the masquerade, we've got two books, we've got two copies of Orpheus. We've got, you know, um, I actually only have one werewolf book because that was like one of the last big books I was willing to spend money mm-hmm. on. Um, but you know, we've got two V five books. So you know, like for me, if I'm going to run shadow run, I better have a copy for the players because I'm going to need those rules too. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely have to curtail my book collecting for the time being just based on space alone. 
Yeah. It, it's something I have a budget item for it, which people are like, oh, you have self-control. I'm like, no, this is the only reason I have self-control because <laughs> right. there's a book budget I can't exceed. <laughs> right. So uh, although whenever I sell something on the Storyteller Vault, to me, that's like, ah, free money that I can spend on yet more books. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, whenever you pick up a side job to support your hobby, I think that's referred to as an addiction. So <laughs> I, <laughs> it just so happens the books seem to be more socially acceptable than cocaine, at least at current. We'll see if that yeah. if that changes over time. Yeah, when but, uh, when the, when all the trees are gone, you know, we'll, we'll yeah. double back. <laughs> Damn <laughs> it! All the trees go. Should have done cocaine. In, yeah, <laughs> in Terry's in Terry's basement. Um, so so that I I fully understand. But well, uh, wanna, let's yeah, let's give a let's give a soft promise. Let's work okay. on doing this one shot actual play. Um, how many people do you want? I would prefer four. I think four is my magic number. Uh, three, three or four. Okay. I ran a bunch of games at Gen Con this weekend and five is where I feel like players don't get enough of the spotlight that you start losing them. Uh, at least for me and mage is very much a game where players generally get to go one at a time. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of good mechanics that everyone always has something to do or to plan their next move or has to consult a table to figure out what their, uh, what their spell does or something like that. So I think three or four is kind of my magic number. And I am fine if people have no prior experience with mage or world of darkness. Uh, I, I have a whole bunch of pregens that I can offer you. I came up with with eight of those. Just pick off the list and we can go from there. So I, I wanted to do a, bu- a bunch of introductory mm-hmm. things on this is how you play mage. Right. Uh, every other game has that except for seemingly mage. And I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm, I am white and know no bounds. So I'm like, of course I can do that if I just figure out how. <laughs> uh, so, so that is something I'm. I'm in the middle of. I don't know if I want to throw myself at the slings and daggers of YouTube and be like, who who's this fat guy telling me how to play mage? He's look at his bald spot. So like I need to I <laughs> I need to be able to deal with with eighth graders, to quote John Mullaney. Yeah. Uh, they make fun of you in a way that is that is especially harmful. And when I got to play uh, kids on bikes this weekend, it was an hour and a half of people emotionally kneecapping each other in only a way that early teens can do. So I certainly appreciate that. And that also goes in my uh, tomorrow project list. I- I'm I'm very interested to know who that guest is, and I have two guesses, but I'm actually not confident in either of them. Uh, so yeah. Anyways, we'll yeah. move on from that. Yeah, it, it, talking on a microphone, maintaining your train of thought is very difficult. Mm-hmm. And if you decide I'm going to make a podcast and I'm going to make sure to edit out every um, there's a padded cell waiting for you somewhere. <laughs> I, I am one of those people. I find it strangely meditative. It's one of those things where after a while you learn to know what it looks like yeah. in the waveform. Yeah. The only problem are words that sound like, um, that you periodically edit out. Like if I ever do an episode on how to add stakeums to your <laughs> game, that will prove to be very complicated for me. <laughs> Why would you do an entire episode on adding steak to your game? So, but, but yeah, I fully, I fully understand that. When, uh, when I first started doing, um, nerd words, the original podcast, I was doing it in my old apartment and I had just gotten out of broadcasting school or I was still in it. And I was so fixated on breaths and ums and silences. And it would take me like three to four hours to edit every podcast And I don't know that anybody ever noticed it. 
And that that's really where I started to go, you know, I'm going to listen to some other podcasts. And I started to listen to other podcasts. And I realized that, like, the podcast medium is meant to be conversational. And ums and ands and breaths, those are all part of conversation. And on that day, I said, I'm done. Fuck it. I'm not going to edit out ums unless they get real bad. You know, I, I still go through and, you know, give it to the once over, you know, the, the shellacking. But sometimes I stutter so much. I'm like, what was I, what was I even thinking there? And so sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll clear out that shit, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time on it anymore. I like the things I've realized I do now that I don't, um, as much. I still, um, not as much as previously. And I will do the triple start where I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I have an idea. I'm like, Great. You really, you really improved your auto quality there. <laughs> Terry, you've replaced <laughs> one um with repeating the same sentence four times. Yeah. I remove all ums that aren't like in the middle of words. So if someone's like, and I um, think that there's no way I'm going to get that um out of the middle of it. No. But if someone starts every sentence with, um, so the thing about this is, yeah, those I go through and I scrub. And for me, it's somewhat meditative. I, I stand on the treadmill and I spend three hours or four hours doing it and always right in the world. And maybe I shouldn't. And I'm just using that as an excuse to not improve the emotional relationships in my life or something. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, <laughs> I should look back at that. The old podcast that I was on, I would record and edit and post all in the same day. And when you give yourself only like three hours to record, edit and post everything, eventually you just go, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not, I'm not yeah. even going to bother. Uh, now like these podcasts, I've, I've already got like four recorded, so I'm not going to maintain that level of, of, you know, South Park esque rapidity in my podca mm -hmm. podcast posting. I'm going to actually take the time to, to edit them and, and do them correctly. Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but basically uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a little bit more time. The, right. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you're editing out the five minutes of inappropriate dirty limericks I had in the middle of the show, making fun of various ethnicities and disabled. It was groups. terrible. Just, I don't even know. Yeah. I like, I didn't know you were that kind of a person. And yeah, I'm, I didn't, I'm not sure where it came, I, came from. I either. am both rattled and shocked, but also I kind of get it. Yeah, I think you're a little impressed. Some little, of those words yeah. you didn't you didn't think they rhymed nearly as well as they yeah. Did. They really just flowed off of your tongue. Yeah, it's it's hard to find words that rhyme with misogyny. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we before we wrap up, um, you had mentioned doing some uh, Gen Con stuff the other Gen day. Gen Con. How did that go? What what was that like? So Gen Con for me. The first time I went to Gen Con, which was last year, and where I finally got to meet you, and that yeah. was lovely, and. My first Gen Con was the perfect grown-up convention in that every morning I woke up at 9, at 10 to 10.30, the group we were with, we left the place we were at maybe a little bit earlier if someone had like a 10 a.m. game or something like that. We stayed off-site. We would game and look around and talk to friends and look through the dealer room and see panels until about midnight we would go home. We would talk about how our day went. We would go to bed. We would get a full eight hours of sleep, rinse and repeat. And we did that for three days. 
And that was just insane to me because like previously I had either been to like Dragon Con, which is best described as the younger, sluttier sister of New York (laughs) Comic Con, where it was like 27 hours a day and I did both costuming and paneling. So it was weird talking about like human mortality curves in the face of disaster while hungover and also dressed like a Star Trek villain. Uh, But I think that's a pretty good summary of what Dragon Con was. And then like Shitball Con on the other end of that, where you're like, oh, I drove to uh, Cincinnati for four hours of stuff I actually wanted to do or something like that. Gen Con was perfect. So it is hard to beat that. The online event was the methadone like substitute for it. (laughs) (laughs) Where you're like, yeah, I guess this kind of tastes like Gen Con. Yeah. It's like the relationship between off brand Tang and fresh squeezed orange juice. You're like, yeah, this has seen an orange once maybe, but it's not quite the same thing. But um, I ran games for the Wrecking Crew, which is one of the the premier partner events. Uh, Dave has been running games since I think somehow before Gen Con existed. Like he was like year one of Gen Con was the seventh year of Dave running games at Gen Con. I don't even know how that happens. <laughs> um, I ran a whole bunch of Mage because I looked at the calendar and there was no Mage on it, and I'm the Mage guy, and it's Gen Con, and there's going to be a bazillion people there. Eight of them should get to try mage. Right, One right. ten thousandth should be able to try my my weird little ugly baby of a game. Um, it's pretty to me, and that's the important part. So I ran a few sessions of mage, and it worked super well because I just ran on Thursday and Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday I played. I got to try masks, which is a powered by the apocalypse Teen Titan superhero game. I got to try Kids on Bikes, which as I described before, uh, I didn't even know there was a system to it by the time we were done. Again, it was just 90 minutes of kids being cruel to one another, which I had (laughs) a lot of fun with. And then I got to try Pasión de las Pasiones, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse game where you are a character in a telenovela. And that was... That was absolutely a delight. I got to throw somebody off of a cliff into the ocean um, because that's what happens (laughs) in a telenovela. And there was a part where it turns out I was pursuing someone who I didn't know I was related to because I had the envelope with the DNA test results that had been swapped out by somebody's evil twin. And this was all happening in the day leading up to a wedding between two narcos and so on. And that was that was a hoot. That sounds delightful. It was great. Yeah, that, um, that that sounds surprisingly interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> and there are, we we have figured out games to give players the, for lack of a better term, technology mm-hmm. to create convoluted fun stories like that. And, and the first step to it was we need games that let players directly change the narrative outside of character. Uh, one of my criticisms of Old World of Darkness is everything you do is something your character does. The player has no power except through the character. Uh, there's no uh, narrative coin that you can turn in like momentum to suddenly change a fact about the world around you to right, make your goals right. easier. Um, and Powered by the Apocalypse is is almost the opposite where, uh, haha, I got a 10 on my roll. I get to ask the storyteller a question, even if my character has no way of knowing it, or I get to fundamentally change my relationship with one of the things in play or introduce a new element to it. Yeah. That's um, a really interesting concept that, uh, um, I, I like, we, we battled against it. My, my gaming group, you know, of course, metagaming, like, you know, mm-hmm. metagame, like, you know, and now to, to read that, I, the first time I read that was in, uh, that came from beneath the sea. Yeah, I was like, this is radically different than anything that I've ever done. And I really want to do more of it. Like, (laughs) this is fantastic. I am Captain Metagame 
I, I think as someone in my mid thirties, metagaming is vital. If I meet with a group once every month or two weeks, I can't just do what my character is mm-hmm. going to do because if my character is going to chase a dead end or a red herring, that represents literally two months of gaming into the toilet. Right. So <laughs> uh, I, I on, definitely agree with what you're saying. I mean, um, I've had to drastically change my outlook on gaming. Uh, I, I guess I didn't have to, I could have just stuck to the way things were, but mm-hmm. um, over the last few years, like meeting new people, exploring how other people game has really opened my eyes to like, Oh, like it's okay to not like, you know, it, it's okay to, to just make assumptions in a game. It's okay mm-hmm. to sometimes, you know, the world doesn't have to dictate everything all the time, always. And, uh, I think, you know, uh, it's something I learned in the world of darkness where it was like, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter. You, you, you better, you better go about this the right way. No metagaming, never, never, never. And yeah, it, that just doesn't always make for an entertaining game. Yeah, I, I think the, the three things that everyone should be willing to lean on is one, uh, know ahead of time if the players are comfortable having their characters die. Um, yeah, that's a good I think, point. <laughs> I, I have a six point scale from rules as written, one bullet will kill you, to the player can always say no and we'll get out of the scrape magically. And again, we're adults. If that's not the game we want to play, we change the assumptions to it. But I, I don't think anyone wants to run a World of Darkness game for eight months just to have their character randomly killed in a car accident. Like, that is almost too real for me. <laughs> um, now that at least I'm at the age where you hear random stories of like, oh, do you remember? Bobby from high school. Yeah. He died of a heroin overdose or he died of a brain aneurysm. Like, I don't want that kind of illness (laughs) in my game. (laughs) Um, and the other one was picking up invisible sun, which I refer to as escapism for my escapism. So I, I I run a game where in mage you're all wizards and I'm like, well, what if I want a more wizardy wizard? And then I play invisible sun (laughs) and, and invisible sun specifically says every character is going to have their motivations. And if you just go from character to character to character, doing their little individual storyline and the group tags along and you keep doing that, almost all your players are going to be bored almost all the time. The only way you can make this work is if there are a outrageous number of coincidences. It turns out the guy that killed uh, Billy's father is also the person who burned down the bookstore that Sarah owned and also owns the magical tome that Clarice needs to advance her character arc. Uh, And it spells it out to you. It says, take advantage of outrageous coincidence. Uh, <laughs> and that's not world of darkness. I'm like, yeah, it's better. How about that? <laughs> uh, so I am, I, I am a person who absolutely loves crunch because I want it to be there because like sometimes daddy's tired and he just needs a ruling from a book. Uh, so I am constantly scouring through other systems to find ways to do things better. And I think for OWD players, it is useful to get out there, try four or five games you've never heard of and just see if there's anything you can steal from yeah. it. Um, yeah, well, that's a that's like the big thing um, for me and this podcast and, you know, the YouTube channel that will eventually launch to accompany it is, you know, I've, I've been playing World of Darkness games almost exclusively for, you know, 15, 16 years, but only recently I'm starting to get into new games. And I think it's important to get into new games to, to mm-hmm. look at different rule sets to expand, you know, what you consider fun, like otherwise what will happen is you'll go, all right, I've done everything possible. I don't want to role play anymore. I'm done. And like, why kill the entire hobby? Because you've kind of wrapped up one facet of it. It just is crazy. 
And it's fascinating to me talking to people who, so I play a bunch of games. I'll probably try 15 to 20 in a year, which to me feels like a lot. But then I talk to these people who play a new game every week. And that's just nuts to me. Like, yeah. uh, to me, I am thrown off when people are like, oh, D&D 5th edition and D&D 3.5 were completely different. I'm like, no, they're hack and slash. How are, how are they different? And then at the same time, I was listening to another podcast who's like, Dungeons and Dragons and World of Darkness are the same thing. And I'm like, hey, buddy, <laughs> you're just sweeping it. But like from that player's point of view of them both being fundamentally simulationist games that are done in actor stance. Right. Entirely accurate. Right. Uh, so yeah, go out there, listen, listen to a weird pocket podcast, pick up an odd game and, uh, and try something kooky. Well, Terry, uh, I really appreciate you coming. Um, I had a great time talking to you. I think this was a very good podcast. And if people don't like it, that there's something just like deficient in them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, where can people find you? If you are interested in hearing more about Mage the Ascension, which is the old World of Darkness game where you're a wizard, go to magethepodcast.com or visit us on Twitter at magethepodcast. That comes out weekly. It rotates between book reviews and whatever the heck I want to talk about. I work pretty hard to point the arrow back at Mage the Ascension and stuff like that. So there, there should always be something that a player or storyteller can take away from either of those episode types. And I'd like to think some of the content is relatively generic and easily applicable to all of Old World of Darkness. We have over 100 episodes of this. Hopefully you'll find something that you like. The first 10 or 15 episodes were a little bit crunchy while we were figuring out sound quality and stuff, but... Otherwise, I think there's a there's a bunch of good stuff there. I also do an Exalted podcast now because I have no self-control called Systematic Understanding of Everything. That's at exaltcast.com. I do that with uh, Chaz Kellner and Monica Specka, who are a writer and developer for Exalted 3rd Edition. And that is strictly a podcast. It's going to be a limited run series where we just explain the world of Exalted. And who better to do it with than than writers for it. Uh, me personally, I'm, I mean, I'm a property casualty reinsurance actuary. So if you're terribly curious about my professional work, you can find me on LinkedIn, but otherwise, uh, at Terry Robinson on Twitter is probably the best way to do it. I've done a bunch of implications on the storyteller vault, uh, how to use fiasco to improve mage. One of the projects I want to talk to Nate about is doing a similar thing for vampire which is basically you roll a bunch of things and you randomly generate a plot. And for Mage, it sold super well. And this is the idea that I wanted to talk to you about a while ago. Mm -hmm. But now that it's literally on your podcast, I feel I can bring it up. So take that. <laughs> that's um, totally fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and that's largely me. We operate a, a hop in Discord, if you're also curious there, discord.me slash Mage the Podcast. And I think that covers just about everything. Cool. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. Do, 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 this do, is where the podcast ends. Thanks for listening to the 2D10 Podcast. If you liked what you heard, check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out our YouTube channel, T-W-O, the letter D-T-E-N. Don't forget to spell it, you dumb dub. If you want to support us more, go to our website, utilitymuffinlabs.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode. <laughs> Don't judge me.